The Effenrad Snowboard Podcast is presented by Vans. Season 6 of Effenrad is sponsored by Wired Snowboards, The Boardroom Snowboard Shop, and on Optics, Ocean Rose Organics, and Crow's Nest Barber Shops, Tribute Board Shop in Nelson, B.C., and Stance Socks. Anon Snow Goggles feature a full spectrum of lens tints, cutting-edge frame design, and fog-eliminating tech for superior clarity in all conditions. Anon pushes the performance of snowboard goggles to the forefront with revolutionary features like Magnatech Magnetic Lens Change System, MFI Magnetic Face Mask Integration, and Perceive Lens Technology. All Anon goggle designs are co-developed with Anon helmets and face masks for a fit that integrates perfectly together to maximize comfort and protection. Support your local Anon goggle and helmet retailer and buy yourself some amazing Anon gear today. Support also comes from Grouse and Mount Seymour and Tomahawk Cannabis Extracts. This week's guest is snowboarding royalty, photographer Trevor Graves. Trevor shot snowboarding in its glorious heyday with guys like Todd Richards, Sean White, Jason Ford, Jeff Brushy, and of course, Craig. I caught up with Trevor at his office in Portland, Oregon this past weekend, and we'll start the conversation here with his story about shooting with early Sims team legend, Scott Clum. So I'll um, set the stage. Once upon a time, <laughs> snowboarding was infant. Uh, I was living in a small town, Chittenango, New York, home of uh, famous BMX pro Dave Mira. Nice. And uh, luge specialist Billy Jarvis. So we were all kind of living in this small town and uh, eating up the California lifestyle of action sports. And, and um, lo and behold, I think we all kind of, we all ran our courses and did okay out of that little town. Yeah. But through that, I ended up uh, going to, uh, we'll call it a community college, Mohawk College in Utica, New York. And it had a advertising design and production program. And this was 19, this fall, 84. And got to campus and met this guy that looked like Billy Idol. He had bleach blonde hair, uh, painter white pants, and um, sim skateboards with the snake double conical wheels, which was like, oh, those are sweet setup. (laughs) And so people would see him and he was going to the fine art institute and I was going to the commercial art program and and back then, you know, you see a skateboarder, you're saying hi for yeah. sure. You're instantly buddies because you hardly saw anybody. And then um, I hadn't picked up a camera yet. So I was in college and part of the program was photography. So we uh, ended up shooting pictures together uh, early on. And that was my homework was shoot pictures of Scott. But it became more than that, too, because he had had um, he was doing adventures out. Uh, at one point living in Tom's tree fort. I'll let him tell that story and hopefully get to talk about it. Oh, I love then, that. That uh, sounds amazing. Tahoe, and, oh. and we've all seen the pictures of Kidwell at the Donner Ski Ranch uh, dump. Yep. And he was there. So he was sort of in the background, but he was also part of it. And Chantry would shoot the videos. And so then Chantry would send a VHS tape out to Scott and then, Literally, Scott and I would go down to the, the department store and hook up two VCRs and then tape it. <laughs> yeah. And then I'd had a copy. And this <laughs> wow. is how 
this is how a viral video went <laughs> back then was literally um, manually doing the thing and um, and being watching those videos uh, that's how you that was that was our interpretation in central New York of snowboarding was the skateboarding aspect to it yeah and that was really Tom's uh, vision and I really like what Brad Stewart has said in the past is like you know Tom Sims didn't invent snowboarding per se, but he definitely invented the snowboarder. Absolutely. And, yeah. And the attitude of where it went and just sort of this, uh, you know, really this lifestyle as opposed to let's call it ski racing and Olympic bound where mm-hmm. I think Jake was kind of thinking early on and, and give Jake credit too. He was a surfer and, and, that, and, you know, in that ballpark, but definitely not a skateboarder. Yep. And, we all know Tom's history and, you know, in the skate company with his family. And, and so it totally made sense to interpret that that way. And then, uh, and so upstate New York, uh, you know, get, I, I remember actually being able to get a SIM snowboard. I remember trading my dorm uh, down payment for a board. Oh, wow. And then I had a SIMS board with the, the fast X clips, no high backs, no steel edges, fe 1500 i wish i still had that board yeah those um, those, i have a friend who has one out here that he still rides it's still rideable (laughs) totally it's a great board yeah yeah good boards but they always they always look cooler than the the burton boards at the time yeah sure yeah and there was just more of this attitude or the chip on our shoulder too of just being skateboarders more so than um ski racers Mm -hmm. and wearing speed suits and so there's there's sort of this evolution that was starting to happen there at that time. And so Scott and I would um, chum around at college and he was like a year ahead of me. And then he would go to the, um, at the time it was the nationals out in Vermont. Mm-hmm. First one was at Mount snow. I didn't join in there, but that's sort of where the whole, let's call it East coast community of snowboarders would get together and, you know, battle it out and see who was the, uh, the fastest that day. Cause it was still, GS and slalom were the only two categories. Just racing. At that who time. are who are the people at this point? Is it like the Coglin brothers and like Brushy's not on the sh- scene yeah. at that point, right? Like he's not yet. Yeah, um, like a few not years away. It's probably yeah. go to eighty five. Yeah. So probably at this time, um, it's really Susie Ruick, Mark Heingartner, mm-hmm. uh, Andy Coglin, his brother Jack mm-hmm. Coglin, and um, John Gernt. Eric Webster, Muzzy, um, Scott. There's other guys, really New Hampshire, Plymouth State kind of guys that I would snowboard with. Brad. Um, Bob Ellis would come down from um, East Coast, or I mean from Eastern Canada, up Jay Peak Way. Nice. Um, then we'd see Greg Hall, uh, Rob Levine. So there's, you know, these guys that were just sort of early racers, I guess, coming into it. And, um, you know, on the, really on the Burton program, flight. Uh, Eric Webster was riding flight boards uh, at that time. Yeah, they're from out that and way too, right? New Hampshire or somewhere. Rhode Island? Rhode Island, probably yeah. Rhode Island. Yeah, yeah. DVD. So sick. So they had the uh, first highback drug pack. <laughs> had a little pouch on the highback where you could put your tools, quote, unquote, yeah. um, flights. And they were actually pretty progressive. They were right there with, I think, as far as shapes, you know, it really looked like similar to a Sims board. Yep. And, cool. Um, Eric's kind of progressed now. He's he's down in Park City managing USASA, uh, you know, Olympic type 
work. Oh, wow. So that was sort of the scene. Uh, the funny one in that picture, um, if anybody gets to see it, it's really, you know, there's a bazillion of photos that I've taken over the year. I'm not trying to boast or anything, but there's probably <laughs> 20 that I really, really like and are timeless in a lot of ways. And that oh, one, absolutely. Scott, doing the front side air is a classic and it's a great story. So we had, um, you know, we're living in Utica and he would call his brother in South New Berlin and then we jump in his Malibu, I don't know, 71 Malibu or something. We all had to pay five bucks in gas and then motor out to this farm where he had, he had scoped where a snow drift would happen if the conditions lined up and it did that day. So it was, uh, it was October 85, I think, and maybe November and it worked out. So wow. Scott, um, dug out the tranny. I had a Minolta X370 with some Triax film and, um, we hit that jump. So right behind me, you don't see it. There's a barbed wire fence for cows. And then, uh, and that shot, you know, it really helped Scott along and it helped me along. We both really benefited from, you know, working together at that time. Absolutely. And then we'd ride all the way back. I think it was, I don't know, three hours back to <laughs> campus. And then I had the job of running the photo lab. So I'd open it up at midnight. We'd go in and just process the black and white film. And then it was like, you know, kids in a candy store. You just couldn't wait to see the pictures. You yeah. The contact sheet, you pick the one and you start making prints at three in the morning. <laughs> and, um, yeah, we'd skip partying and drinking and, and, uh, just, you know, get, get our creative uh, juices flowing inside the photo lab. That's so rad. I, I really always thought of Scott Clum as a West Coaster. I mean, I don't know that much about him, but I, just because of the Sims affiliation, it must have been a weird thing to be the, the East Coast Sims guy because Burton, like, a, like, like you said, to flight, like you've got, a dominance of Burton and and the East Coast by and calling it East Coast, I mean, you know, to the East, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, by all accounts, that's that's where they were. And then Sims was definitely California, Oregon. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've had people out of Utah in that era say, you know, on the, for the boot pack up the canyon. <laughs> There was the Burton Boys boot pack, and there was everybody else. And you didn't hike up the yeah. boot pack with the other guys. Huh. I never experienced that. It's funny because the way you're describing it, it didn't really feel like it that. And maybe mm -hmm. it's just the bubble I was in. It was just, you had a snowboard. Yep. And um, what's up? Can I sleep on your couch? Like <laughs> there was, um, it was just even getting a snowboard was really, really difficult. And so if you saw somebody with one and you knew that that was a really good snowboard, an expensive snowboard, that you would say, hey, this guy's pretty serious about it. He just dropped 300 bills on a board. So, yeah. Gosh, yeah, I just had a flashback of the there's a Nationals. We were at Stratton that year. I think it was probably the first U.S. Open, 85, 86. And then Tom, Tom's a goofy footer and Jake Burton is regular foot. Yeah. And a lot of the Sims team was goofy footed, Kidwell included. Um, this, this team, he came out uh, with a 14 year old Sean Palmer. And oh, wow. Gary Kidwell was sort of babysitting him. Yeah. His mom just let him get on a plane to come to Florida, out to Vermont. Uh, this guy, Robert Torres, he was probably 14. And um, Alan Armbruster was on the Sims team. So pretty sure he was goofy footed. So. What Tom would try to do 
and this is just my opinion. This is my observation. So sure. know, don't hold me to it. Don't cancel <laughs> me. But he would try to set the course for goofy foot advantage. And um, right. Jake kind of got wind of, hey, no, Tom, we're not going to set the course to be a goofy foot advantage course. And, and um, Jake would try to make it, let's call it a neutral course so that his team, who's mostly regular footers, could get down the course faster too. So there was those battles that would happen on the, it was like, I, the only thing I could imagine is like if parents are fighting and you're and they're in the middle of a divorce, yeah, kind of uncomfortable. I don't want to be here. Kind of fight between <laughs> yeah. grown men, and you're like, oh, this is awkward. <laughs> but it was probably healthy in hindsight that um, you really had two of these um, strong visionaries pushing their version of what they wanted snowboarding to be at the time, and so uh, it was, you know, it was just necessary. By all accounts, and, that's the that's the you know that's become the official kind of history of snowboarding because once you've got Tom versus Jake um and you could also write that Jake came from Sherman right like so you kind of go like oh that's like Sherman invented the snurfer and then Jake competed at at the Sherman um competition and then yeah. Tom, it kind of encompasses everything except for it really leaves out Dimitri. And Dimitri was doing it before Tom and Jake were really even. So there's like a whole other aspect of it. And then again, the flight guy, he was also in there pretty, pretty heavy at that time. But we do uh, tend to tend to focus on that because that's what was happening within these big competitions. And that would, and I'm calling a competition of, you know, I don't know how many guys would have been there. Less than a hundred, I'd imagine, in '85. And yeah, it felt like maybe eighty, but yeah. But they, but they did come to really steer the ship, like you said. Tom invents the snowboarder. Every when you talk about the team that Scott Clum was on, and you just mentioned a couple of those heavy hitters. Well, then there's also going to be Todd Richards and Craig Kelly and and Jacoby's on there at some point like pretty much everybody was on that Sims team at at that point and then you got a few guys yeah, that, the, um, that were Burton guys well if you were a skateboarder you were on Sims mm-hmm. for sure so that's mm-hmm. where Todd I think Todd kind of showed up about 88 yep. on the it's called the New England Cup, and there was also um, Brett Smith, a fuse out in Vermont. He came up with uh, the Collegiate Championships. Rad. It was a college snowboarding race, and um, Todd was part of that as well. Remember the Muffin Cup, but um, yeah, there's a really strong uh, freestyle, you know, aspect to that. You know, again, those guys from Baker coming in. Rob Morrow was another guy. Oh yeah. Convention out of Oregon. Yep. And that was, um, you know, there's some DNA that kind of threads itself. A game of who you know and all your connections in life really ultimately um, helps shape who you become in life. And that relationship between Rob and Jake ended up blossoming into the moral snowboard. Yeah. Uh, it happened in 1990-ish. So, yeah. <clears throat> it's incredible to yeah hear the fabric of snowboarding you know, being laid thread by thread, like you say, you know, Tom, by all accounts, 
was that guy that would try and set the course. You know, <laughs> Ken Ockenbach talks about a race where Tom shows up, puts a perfect line on his board down, you know, the very first groomers of the day, sets all the gates up around right. his turn, yep. draws bib number yep. one so he gets to go first. And the second right. run down right. the course is his run, and he's now had two runs, and nobody else has had even one. And then <laughs> if somebody's about to, to beat his time, then his wife trips the gate at the bottom and, oh, no, you know what, your time, we it got messed up. So you got to go back up and try again in the ruts or whatever. I mean, he could be exaggerating, but it seems to me like, you know, Tom was about Tom, but he also brought up Palmer and he also brought up Kidwell and he also, by everybody's accounting, would just give boards away. He'd give you the board that he was riding. He'd come to your mountain in the middle of nowhere and be snowboarding and see that you were pretty good. And at the end of the day, he'd just be like, here's my board and here's my phone number. And now you're on the team. You know what? I'll have my guys send you a contract. Right. That was early influencer marketing. by yeah. Tom Sims analog version. <laughs> Love it. Uh, but that's a skateboarding too. It's like, you mm-hmm. know, it's really, that's a skateboarding marketing model, bringing it into snowboarding. Yeah. Best kid in the neighborhood that goes to the shop that influences all the other kids that think they're the coolest and then they buy the same gear. So. Yeah, it works. It yeah. still works to this day. Yeah. He brought up uh, Bert Lamar, right? And then even that relationship, there was some oh, yeah. spite there that created Lamar snowboards, where Bert was just like, well, I didn't make enough money or any when I was a kid skating for Tom. Sure. So I'm, I'm going to make, I'm going to sign a contract with Sims, take his money and use it to seed my own company. And he did it, and it was successful. So, yeah, I mean, that's still a tick mark in the Tom box right. of influence there, you know? Yep, love him, hate him. Can't mm-hmm. take his history away. Yeah. And we're just sharing it for the next generation to inquire and wonder, how did I get to this point of being a snowboarder? And um, that's the guy. That's the guy. <laughs> There's no question. I think from Scott... Uh, Clum, I would want to talk about Craig because you you mentioned, you know, there are 20 shots that for you are these iconic snowboard shots that you that you took. And I mean, I'd I'd probably bump that number double for me. But that one shot of Craig, there's it's never been replicated. I've never seen it anywhere else. Someone doing what he's doing. He's kind of coming over like a natural feature. That's just a little, you know, like a bump in a, in a sunny snow, like a mini cornice or something. And the way his arms are pointed and the way the board is pointed, it just is a beautiful shot, but you have really don't know what he's doing. It's not like a layback or something. It's, It's kind of one of his signature, beautiful carves. But the image itself is just, I, I mentioned it to my friend today, and he's like, oh, I know that shot. I'm like, yeah, that guy took that shot. I said, you know that brushy shot with the dress? Yeah, yeah. that's... Yeah, he took that shot. Well, Craig, so Craig Kelly, and I think the shot you're talking about is, um, it was a it was a shot that was done by Burton, and I think JDK Agency in Burlington did it. It was called POW, P-O-W, and there's an illustration of a handgun. Oh, possibly. Uh, that's the one. Possibly. And, um, 
and that was a tr- that was a trip. Uh, and if it's not, we could just make up a story. <laughs> any story of Craig's always fun to talk about. Um, just I think we've you know, and it's like trying to come up with something that's you know, there's there's a lot been said about Craig, and I think everybody that had worked with him always has some good stories. And um, yeah, there's a lot of that guy was that guy was really smart mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Um, and I'll try to share some insights that maybe we didn't learn or know sure. I, just by experience of hanging out with Craig. Yeah. So this shot, if that's that shot, it was probably 92. Uh, what Craig had done is talked, um, I think Dennis Jensen or one of the powers that be over at Burton to say, Hey, give me a budget. I'm going to go out on the road with Lee Crane from Transworld Snowboarding, Jason Ford, who was on the team, mm-hmm. Noah Brandon, and um, and Trevor Graves, and we're going to go do an editorial shoot, and anything that we get that's really rad, then we'll use it for the Burton advertising campaign. And so he, he garnished a, bo- a budget to go do this little road trip. So he's guaranteed, because he would make photo incentive, that if he get the <laughs> article published, yeah. that he knew he could have it published in the States of trans world. Then he has snow surf in Japan and he's got, um, uh, MBM something or another in Germany. Like he, he had lined up all of that and he goes, if I can get a cover, then, you know, he's, he's cranking. And so it was all in the back of his head. The guy's always having fun and being authentic to snowboarding. So I don't want to make it sound like he's a sellout by any means. He's just very professional and knew how to work it. Cause let's mm-hmm. face it. Winter's a very short window and we all have to, we got three months to, you know, get these shots that basically feed an industry for a year. Mm-hmm. So, uh, he's a hard worker, no question. And, yes. and this is, um, and what I always loved with these relationships with Jason Ford, probably more so than Craig, but it's like, you could look at something and just not even talk. He <laughs> knew exactly where the guy was going. He knew exactly what I, he needed to do. I knew what he was going to do. And then boom, it just got done. Nice. Um, and in this shot, like Craig was starting to surf. So he's being influenced by um, Kelly Slater. I mm-hmm. think he was, you know, he was um, starting to have conversations with Kelly Slater and learning about, let's just call it that, that confidence, you know, that we know that Kelly Slater has and starting to instill that in himself mm-hmm. as one of the leaders of our industry. Rad. And so I really think there's, there's a definitely a connection there. And, um, and then Craig ultimately started surfing a lot more uh, later in his career after he stopped competing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And this one was, um, that was a great road trip. We got a lot done. The sun came out, the snow was genius and huh. there wasn't a lot of snowboarders getting in your way to take up the lines that you wanted to hit. So right. <laughs> it was a magic moment. <laughs> yeah. When you mentioned the surfing, that's, that's essentially what that shot is. It It's a, a shot that, mm-hmm could be in a in a surf magazine like he's just in a position yep. that that you know that he's confidently commanding his board it's incredible and it's yep. still timeless it's, i was looking at it the other day and i've looked at it a million times i was looking at it last night and i'm going i can't really even tell what's going on here but i can see from the direction of the snow that he's going quickly and I could see that his arms are deliberately where they are. Just the arching of the back, I think. Yeah, yeah. He, he knew it was important to have style. So, you know, I don't know if he thought about it, how hard he thought about it, or just natural uh, manifestation of his being. I think he had a lot on the line as far as 
the fact that he's he walked away from a chemical engineering degree and a you know a a middle class life or you know a good life money wise that you know I, I've heard from his sister that he would get her to call the newspaper and be like. You know, did you know a local kid just won the world championships or something? You know, so then they would print something and he would clip yep. it out and send it to Burton. And he he was meticulous yep. about. Yeah. I love how you're saying, yep. you know, that that he basically came up with the travel budget for a professional snowboarder. Like there's professional snowboarders that listen to the show. Like that's where it came from. You can you can bring it all the way back. To him, I know that Tom Burt was also working with Jim Zellers on making their bucket list of riding the seven mountain ranges of the world happen on somebody else's budget. And they were kind of doing the same thing, but they were calling hotels and saying, hey, we'll mention your hotel in the article and we've got this guy coming from this magazine or whatever. It's, But yeah. you're making it up from scratch. And so I'm curious, like, how do you get to the point where, like, is there a point where you, you decide to be a full-time photographer or does, like, a, an assignment fall in your lap that you're like, oh, wow, I can cruise on this for a bit while I'm figuring out what I'm going to do, and then the next assignment comes up and you're like, well, maybe I'll just do this. That's a great question, actually, and I think it's, I think the answer is more than just, let's call it photography, but it's still just sort of... um Oh gosh, it's just a follow your passion lesson in life. Um, so the, you got to remember, I would come from Syracuse on a Friday night. I'd leave work at a photo lab where I would do, let's call it wedding photography, prints and processing of professional film. And then I'd get in the car in a 77 Chrysler LeBaron, drive to Plymouth, New Hampshire, get there at two in the morning uh, after the frat party, sleep in the wet beer in my North Face sleeping bag. And then I would shoot the race, the New England Cup, uh, in the morning that night, be done, drive back to Syracuse, process my film, make prints for everybody, sell them for five, ten bucks a piece to get gas money to keep doing it. But it's the and it's the other sacrifices I made. I didn't um I wouldn't drive my car during the summer, so I would take it off the road to save the insurance and the gas and the maintenance and ride wow. my bicycle, A, to get in shape, and then B, to just save the money. So that would save me about 300 bucks, and that was my travel budget to drive back and forth to, uh, to Vermont and New Hampshire every weekend. Wow. So it's really there's a commitment and there's a sacrifice made to just do it, and there's still this entrepreneurial thing of like the magazines weren't invented yet, International Snowboard Magazine literally was just starting i was um east coast correspondence and i don't know what year it was 88 89 maybe mm -hmm. and i think my first check came um five dollars for a shot of john gert racing noah brandon at neshoba valley in new hampshire in wow. massachusetts <laughs> so there was really no money yet yeah and um so you just kind of hoping that by the time you're ready that that paycheck will be there and if it wasn't not cool, I got to go snowboarding and scam a free lift ticket at Stratton because <laughs> I had a press credential. Nice. That was good enough. Yeah. Right? And then plenty of nights of sleeping in your car and in your truck with icicles off the ceiling and uh, plenty of nights of 
you know, sleeping in the lodge. This is before alarm systems. Like I would <laughs> hide under the under the tablecloth and sleep there because it was warm and my gear wouldn't fog up. Uh, charge batteries that way. So, um, yeah, you do some stuff because you're super committed and passionate that this is going to work and um, you do it. I think the tipping point for me was maybe, oh gosh, it was 88, 89. Jeff Brushy went to the um, Worlds in Europe and won. And so I was the only guy that had pictures of Jeff Brushy. Um, nice. And kid was what, 15, 16 years old at the time. You know, he'd always have a runny nose and he had this <laughs> Tony Hawk half lop bang and a lot of, he was listening to a lot of, um, hip hop. He's definitely into rap music Yeah. early, early on. So he was bringing this style into the sport on the East coast and East coast had great half pipes. So it was a great training ground. So it wasn't a surprise for us to see that Jeff won. We all knew he had it. And the phone was ringing. The fax machine was going crazy from Japan and Germany. Everybody wanted a picture of Jeff Brushy. And so I started building up a client list for my editorial work. And then I got an opportunity to move to um, Oregon. I, I'd, uh, Brad Stewart had given my wife at the time a job as a managing team for Morrow Snowboards in Salem, Oregon. Oh, wow. Gave us 500 bucks. Um, and we had the Morrow rep van cause we were repping, she was repping for Morrow snowboards on the East coast, 89, 90, 90 now. And she, um, and that's when I committed. So I knew that once I got to the West coast, I would be able to double, triple my business and I'd be much more accessible for people. Cause right yeah. now, you know, Bud Floss, it was, was King, Rod Walker, um, Sonny Miller, there's a few guys that were, were specializing in shooting a lot of snowboarding and there was starting to be more of a market because by 93, you know, it was the heyday and game on. Yeah. And so to make the team or make the cut there, I was still the young guy and I had a lot to, I had a lot to earn Yeah. and being positioned there. I could get to Tahoe. I could get to, um, you know, Asia. I was taking a lot of trips down to New Zealand in those years. Uh, once I committed to going and yeah, my, my business quadrupled by the time I went out to Oregon Oh, and I've rad. been here since. So I've fallen in love with the city of Portland and uh, continue to call it home. And uh, I feel very, very lucky to be here. Yeah. Did you know about skateboard photography or magazine stuff before you started doing it? Or is it just something that you just built up? Uh, you know, getting skateboard or magazine, and this is 19, gosh, probably 1979, mm -hmm. you know, my friend Ronnie Bruno would go to Florida and he'd skate with uh, Mike McGill down at Clearwater. And that's our skateboarding feed yep. back to East New York and yeah. bring a skateboarder magazine. We'd thumb through that thing until it was, you know, it was raw. Like we just consumed it. And then when the Bones Brigade video came out, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's game on. And that's what you figured snowboarding would be is as big as, as the Bones Brigade looked. Mm. And you just assume that that's, that's just inevitable. This is what's going to happen. You never thought about it. And I think the other one is like, what's big, you know, when you're a kid from a small town, you know, I thought it was bigger than it really was. Yeah. I didn't really get a context of how small it actually was until I actually left the industry, to be honest. Right. Like when you're in it, it feels so big. And, and I think I had an aha moment where I was in the back country on a hatchet shoot or something. And you go, man, nobody's here. But then you go to, I was starting to shoot 
um, for Ray Gun Magazine, you go to U2 concert for free to bet or something, it's just jam-packed with a bazillion people, and they're all paying, you know, 80 bucks for a ticket or whatever it was at the time, and then you're like, oh, this is how the economy of scale works. Yeah, I've heard that a lot through the show, through the six years I've been doing it. Like, because I'm like you, I... For me, snowboarding is, is such a big part of my life. And I look at companies like Billabong or, or Vans now is this humongous company. But I, but I always thought that Vans was a humongous company, but it wasn't always. And you go outside the snowboard industry and you realize, oh, my God, the numbers of people that actually snowboard that are like it's a thousand people running the entire industry and nobody in the history of snowboarding got rich from it. No one, not even a snowboarder that signed a million oh, dollar Sean's contract. Doing all right. Oh yeah. Okay. Sorry. The, one Sean's guy, doing all right. one guy did. Well, I'm sure there's and Jake. Sure. Day, the, there's the, not a dozen and not, not many. Yeah, it, not, it's, it's not like musicians, I guess. No. And it's taken the money from people who've invested in it <laughs> and just kind of spread it around. Right. Like the Nike guys, you know they never made any money yeah. doing it, so they they poured more in, into it than they took out. I would I would imagine. Oh, well, they did all right. Trust me. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's an intimate industry, is what I'm what I'm getting at. Mm-hmm. The next guy on my list after yeah. Craig was was Brush, like clearly, and you've mentioned yeah, like that, like he was an East Coast phenomenon for sure, and still to this day, anyone who comes out of the East Coast is going to cite. Jeff as being a huge influence. He was just that kind of a person, even though he was pretty soft spoken, I guess, eh? Brush is um he's a funny kid. Yeah, where did he begin? Like there's <laughs> um we had a first half pipe was built at Tinney Mountain in New Hampshire, and it was pretty much just a bowl at the end of um kind of a, a taco. Yeah. And what Jeff would do is uh just wind up all of his speed and just hit the bottom of that quarter pipe and just blast, throw up a suitcase air. And then, you know, at that time, maybe six feet out, but that was, you know, 10 times more than the next guy. Yeah. And he'd win. And nice. so it was this, um, it was this, uh, fearlessness and the style, his commitment to, uh, really skateboarding. You could tell was a very big influence in, in his style at that time. Mm-hmm. And, his, his, he was a quiet guy, you know, it's like, it was always weird when, it was weird the first time we would travel and then he'd get recognized, you know, it was sort of these uh, Beatles or yeah. uh, rock star kind of thing where you go in, into an airport and people start recognizing you at the mall and it's like, yeah, I, I don't think Jeff was really comfortable with it. I think he'd kind of have days where he'd be better with it, but um, he didn't really get addicted to uh, fame and celebrity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In, I could in see my that. Opinion. Yeah. And, um, did really commit to the art form. Like it was really important to have good style. And then, um, his work ethic was there. Uh, I loved his mom, Karen. Yeah. She was always there to support him. Rad. And, bring him to all the contests because at the time, you know, Andy Coughlin, I think is another guy that needs to be credited with uh, Jeff's success. He would, uh, he had a boarding shop Him and his brother had a store and they would sponsor him, but they would bring him to the events. And, um, Brad. at that time you had to run gates 
do the GS and then freestyle. So you had to win the overall. So yeah. Jeff was able to do all three categories. It's funny. I have a picture here. I'm looking through my files, but in 1990 out at Squaw, he took his race board into the half pipe and nice. um, tweaked it because he can. You know? Yeah. But, yeah. Um, yeah. There's that also him in the race right. course do, doing a method is that on his freestyle board? Oh, yeah, June Mountain, Bud Fawcett. Yeah, that's a Bud shot. Well, the boards are getting better. Mm-hmm. When Craig started having design influence, like you could race on, you could do a, a race on, let's call it, it's probably just a cruise board, an overall board now, but it was, um, yeah, you get down the hill on them. Yeah. Yeah, someone just told me last week that Mario Paulo Dubini was the last guy to win a World Cup, World Championship in soft boots and i was like wait he was in soft boots yeah for a euro italian euro at that i know right how awesome is that great human being yes met him at mount baker last year and uh, gonna have him on the show for sure he seems just like an amazing yeah amazing human that's so sick yeah brushy also famously was the first guy on the burton team to just be like oh can i not race (laughs) is that something i can I'm going to just not do yeah. it if that's okay. And then, you know, Ford was like, oh, if he's not doing the race, I'm not doing the race. Forget it. Yeah, huh? there, was a, there was a little fallout right there. <clears throat> and that was maybe, you know, really it's, you know, it's Craig at the end of the day coming into the program and having Jake's ear and confidence and uh, it worked out. Mm-hmm. Totally worked out. Yeah. So were you, did, would Burton hire you as a staff photographer at that time? Or was it just like kind of uh, piecework type stuff? So early on, the was only freelance gigs. And yeah. They were the most sought after shoots were the Burton shoots. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would hire the most days in a row. And the big, big ones, um, you're basically shooting in collaboration and let's call it in competition with the other best shooters in the world. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Vianney Tussaud. Yeah. Uh, amazing, amazing guy. Uh, Kevin Zacker later on. Um, and of course, Bud Fawcett. So you're always working hard to get those. And Dennis Jensen was genius at really getting people to work together and work against each other, <laughs> nice. I guess in a healthy way, Yeah, you know, to yeah. be competitive. Yeah. Um, and Ellen Holmes was there early on, gave me an opportunity. I think the really first chance I, the first shoot I did with Burton was Jason Ford got me in. It was a small shoot. Uh, it was him and Noah Brandon Stratton pipe after the U S open. And we were just getting, you know, basically some catalog stuff. I think I traded out. I wish I had this board too. Like, uh, it was a, the Craig board, but it had, it, didn't have the black coat. It had white, orange, and yellow. Oh yeah, those are. Remember that board. Those they, are very, very sought out. after now. Yeah, you had one of yeah, those. <laughs> I traded that. Oh, yeah, I traded that out and then some cash. But then, um, yeah. And so Jeff, you know, back to the freestyle movement. Really, it's the, it's filling the editorial pages. So now you're pushing into. Craig joins the program, goes through the legal battles, yep. comes out with the mystery air, which I heard it's worth a lot of money. I had a booster year. I wish I still had it today. I put my kid through college. Like, <laughs> yeah, totally. Those things are sought after. Yep. Absolutely. And then I, actually my first cover shot with brushy was on that board, the mystery air. 
Oh, wow. Um, Night Shot. Uh, Doug Palladini wanted to have something unique and different, very skate influenced, and that was the cover. Dope. Uh, that was my first cover, actually, was Brushy. Oh, that's amazing. And we figured out through our experiences that we didn't have to shoot at night. We could shoot at dusk and that we would wear light color clothes so that we could be seen against the background. So dope. The little things we learned as a team, as a unit, um, you know, Team Dookie was out of that era. <laughs> yep. Noah Brandon, Jason Ford, Greg Hall, Rob Levine, living up at Sugarbush and doing a deal with them. Brushy was still young, going through high school. Todd Richards was coming up from Massachusetts. He was in uh, design school at the time and um, did finish his degree, and he would come up and compete on the New England Cup. So that was sort of the crux of the East Coast. Yeah for the freestyling crew that came out, Andy Coughlin, you know, bless his heart. He would jump into the pipe, but, um, just never meant to be. <laughs> he had other, other things to contribute to our industry. Absolutely. Well, it was either he or Jack that dropped the rope. That was nice. Thanks guys. Like they took the rope off the right. nose and went into Jake and said, you don't need it. Seriously. We dropped it last night. It's fine. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great story. Yeah, isn't that awesome? Yeah. Yeah. So we have yeah. them to thank for and, that. And then my favorite story with Brushy, actually, I think it was 90, 90 something U.S. Open, and Hawkinson came out. Mm. And so, yeah, he's sort of the next. I'd seen the kid in Switzerland and knew that he had style, and I watched him, Hawkinson, actually copy Craig Kelly's run exactly. Right. You know, kid was 14 years old. So they brought him Hawkinson over the U.S. Open. And then we all jumped on a train in Albany, New York, headed down to New York City into Harlem. Because uh, Jeff wanted to pick up some DJing pads and needles. Wow. And we go in, we get off 100th, on 100th Street or something in Harlem, walking through. And it's Harlem. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's Harlem, pre-Harlem. Hawkinson was a mouse. He's a very confident man, but he's yes. very, you know, sheltered. It was pretty intimidating walking through those streets. And yeah. Jeff wanted to go to this store. This is pre-internet and all that good stuff. So we went down. Um, and then um, a guy comes up into the street and he says, hey, I think you boys should get back on the train and head downtown. I think you'll be safer there. <laughs> and Hawkinson, he says, yes, yes, we should get downtown now. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we took the train and went down to the city on a uh, mission to get some hip hop stuff. That's insane. That's amazing. So yeah. So, who was your favorite to shoot with? Is there someone that that stood out as, as as just like you guys had like that kind of photographer rider clairvoyance? You mentioned Ford. It was easy to shoot with. Is there? Is, yeah. It was there someone? No that, question. It's Ford. Like yeah. Jason Ford. There's no question. I mean, there's plenty of people. You know Scott early on for sure, and mm -hmm. we learned a lot. Uh, and then, uh, you know, with Jason, now the game was getting serious because he was trying to grow his career. And again, Jason's blue collar kid. His mom ran a hotel motel mm -hmm. out of Poundell, Vermont, and um, kid knew how to work. That kid would work 20 hours a day on his dad's farm in Boston all summer long to get the money to go snowboarding, and he wanted to make it happen and um, had the talent to do it. Definitely won world titles in GS. And then freestyle was calling and we worked together 
on a lot of road trips and just the, and he was helping me learn. I mean, you know, we do these night shoots at Stratton. It was a big learning curve. Um, and it's something unique. I think the East coast had was we had these really stellar pipes, you know, on the West coast, mm-hmm. they could fill in really quick and there wasn't the maintenance crews and the, and the pipe dragons right. uh, to basically scoop them out. Mm-hmm. And so they just didn't really pay attention. So if you really want to do that, East coast Stratton was the place to be. And Lyle was the guy that would clean that pipe out and, we'd get the call. We knew that the pipe was fresh and we'd get up there. Um, and then the thing I learned, uh, with Jason and all those guys, um, Chris Wires, Brushy, Bromley, the Seths, um, of course, Russell Winfield were shooting at night. Um, cause you wanted to get that skateboard look yeah. um, with the flashes. Yeah. And I think that's a whole story in itself between those two is just dragging, um, Again, I have a 70, I think I had a pickup truck then, a little pickup, but I dragged this um, 2,000 watt generator wow. out to Vermont from Syracuse. And then I had this Novatron 400 watt flash kit that they use for like, you know, getting your picture taken at school or, yeah. you know, portraits at weddings and things. And it needed to be plugged in into electricity. So I need a generator to run the flash kit because those uh, METS flashes and all those big, powerful photos etc weren't invented yet so this is the fastest cheapest way i knew to do it and i had worked with a guy at this time i moved to albany and working at general electrics this guy mike hamburger uh, and greg bernalini coached me and mentored me on how to because they had rit degrees and they were navy trained and they were giving me all the inside baseball on how to actually use the equipment and um so i'd shoot during the night i'd take it down to work process and you'd learn um I'd had this little Polaroid adapter that I made to go on the back of a Nikon. So on the, on location, I could learn what I was doing right because man, you only get to shoot for an hour or two as much gas as you had. And then it was over. It was freezing cold. If you were a rookie on my shoot, you'd have to drag that generator up the hill. I remember, <laughs> you know, definitely the young guys would say, Hey, you got to push the generator up the hill put it in one of those little red sleds and push it up the hill. Oh, wow. And think, you know, and blessings too to um, Myra and uh, JP at Stratton um, for allowing us to do it. Cause obviously the liability to be out there after hours. Oh, totally. Those guys saw the vision and trusted us enough to, um, to let us do these shoots. So thank you. And, Amazing. Um, and we'd learn. And so they would work really hard because they knew there'd be a payoff. And so, it's not uncommon to have crews like in music, you know, you look at, you know, a band like, you know, I mentioned you too. Those guys went to school together, the BC boys, they grew up together. Mm-hmm. And it's the same for this crew. We kind of worked together. I was the shooter guy. They were the talent. We all had a role to play. And, um, the end, the end goal was to get fed into the, into the snowboard bags to, to make a living. So we didn't have to get real jobs. <laughs> and as everybody worked super hard to do it because there's that blue collar, just, I'm going to make it grind um, that we all had that ended up happening. So, yeah. So with um, the night shoots really got those guys on the map because those shots really stood out. And as an artist, that was really important to me to want to have something that was different than what Bud Fawcett had. Cause mm-hmm. you know, Bud was in Tahoe and he had the powder and he had Palmer and Kidwell and white snow, that, blue that sky got a guy in the sky. Like yeah. it was, it was, it's beautiful, right? It, it, it's hard to beat still even to this day, you know? But yeah, those photos, they're always going to be peppered in. Like the interesting, you know, artistic 
you could see the motion in like a blur somewhere or did you did you shoot during that that sequence era where everything was like an 80 shot yeah. sequence yeah <laughs> well, yeah it's came up there's been a lot of this, with this covid lockdown there's been a lot of nostalgia and people yeah. kind of want to reflect back on this stuff because it's something that's easily accessible so it's been nice getting these kind of calls this year but uh I think the stat I had for the city of Portland was I had the, I was the largest consumer of Fuji RDP 100 film in the city of Portland, <laughs> and um, the same statistic for um, for processing. There's a, a lab here. The lab guy actually reached out at Y East um, is where I would process all my E6 uh, my slide film. Yeah, and that was that era. I think it was probably '93 or something. Sequences were going ballistic and. Yeah, I was shooting 100 rolls of film. It was just, it was nuts. Um, and all that stuff sitting in a safe in the basement here at Nemo Design. So if you ever want to see a sequence from back in the day. Oh, dude, do I? Still here. Of course. I think there's probably, you know, 10 snowboard media people that have a bunch of film archives that it would just be so sick to digitize it that's like a full-time job yeah. for a year yeah for not me i'm not doing that it's tedious someone who likes to do it yeah the roi isn't there unfortunately mm -hmm. and i do take it's hard because i'll get the request to go into the files and pull stuff and it's just um there's you know there's no budgets of course and right you want to do it but it's like pulling time away from you know we've got a team here at nema design that i have to feed and yep it's just finding the time. So once in a while, I'll get down there and I'll put the, you know, put the effort in and try to grab some old stuff. And uh, and over the past years, I've had interns come in and they'll I'll sit them down at a scanner and try to get things going. It yeah. depends. Sometimes they're good at it. Sometimes they're not so good at it. But um, it's just a way to at least get some of this stuff up uh, digitally because it's digital. I can share it quickly and e economically. You know, it used to be a FedEx totally. had to go out and that. Oh no, there's another twelve dollars. Yeah. Um, Digital versus film. How how hard did you push back? Were you one of the guys that was like, digital will never replace film for a little bit? Or were you, did you see it, see it coming down the pike? So the question then is like, what was the transition like going between digital and film? Yeah. Like, was it, and did it push you out of your job and push you into Nemo design as opposed to being a photographer full time? Great question. It's the lit fuse mm -hmm. for sure. Mm. So early on, I uh, was on senior staff at Snowboarder Magazine, mm -hmm. and uh, you know Dana was on the team then. Sully, yep. John, Sean Sullivan. Yep. I remember pushing to get all of us the digital cameras, and at the time, I don't know, it was a Nikon BX or something, but it was three. I want to say three point five megapixels. Yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't really big enough for a two-page spread, maybe just barely. Right. And um, my argument was that, you know, you'll save on all the processing. Mm -hmm. And what I didn't really anticipate was you just kind of, you know, replace processing to let's call it, you know, somebody on a computer processing the color and right. the, uh, the demons, et cetera, to get it ready for uh, the printing press. So, but I, you know, also saw that, um, you know, we call it uh, chimping. Mm -hmm. like. um, Ooh, ooh, ah, ah. Now you could chimp a photo, which is it shows up on the screen in the back and everybody could look at it. Totally. And that was it. Like it was interesting when video came on the scene as a still shooter. I, 
you know, it used to be the still guy was the king. Mm -hmm. And then in Dogger's area, video guys became king because at night you could look at the video and, you know, you got 17 year old males that want instant (laughs) gratification. So they would definitely migrate into the hotel rooms to the, into the, watching the film of the yeah. day, they could learn faster. Where mine at film was, they weren't going to see anything ever because right. it takes me two weeks to process it. So it was so slow and expensive to even share the pictures with those guys if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And the digital came on and a big argument or pushback. And there was one shooter, I can't remember who he was, but uh, the ethicalness of duplicate shots going to competitive magazines was the was the big um, mm. cloudy dark cloud over digital because uh you could send the same shot to both and then transworld would have the same picture the same month as snowboarder and that would not be cool and so this poor young shooter made the mistake and even then it was a film. He broke up a sequence, you know, the apex of a sequence when these motor drives are shooting at six frames a second. So he yep. broke it up and the, both magazines came out with that. I forgot who it was, but I think it I, was I Dano actually. I, th- I think Dano or I Dano had a, I would remember that. well, the thing was Dano had something similar happen with, because he joined Sean Sullivan's, um, remember he hit, what was his production company where he, he was like, look, I'll sell your, I'll sell your photos to the magazines because I know how to do it. So you submit oh, them to yeah. me. And yeah, so, yeah, so that happened. Dano got swept up in that somehow. He's like, well, it's Sean's fault or, oh. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then, oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a nightmare, but one way or the other, you're probably referencing something else, but it, it definitely happened. And it definitely was not cool. They were, you know, like the the magazines mm-hmm. had to have some sort of yeah, because they're not talking to each other when they weren't owned by the same people. Like you wouldn't want your magazine to come out and your cover shot be, you know, a two page spread in the competition. God, you wouldn't even no. want the shots to be in there. There's, yeah, no, there was a learning curve for all, and then. I think the other one was the um, Photoshop was starting to happen. Absolutely. So you could bump somebody's air up sure. 10 feet. Yeah. You know, you get a blue sky and a pipe. It's yeah. easy to put that guy up another four feet. So totally. So you get, you know, a bigger paycheck. So yeah. There was some eth- unethical stuff early on with any new medium. People are cheating. Oh, wow. But I think it kind of, um, it averaged itself out. And obviously we're here today in the digital realm. But yeah. for me as a business person, I saw, uh, I saw the tunnel getting very dark. Because okay. what is happening is that, you know, the skills required to shoot um, negative film, you, know, had a, you only had a third of a stop exposure tolerance mm-hmm. to make a good exposure. Mm-hmm. So you really had to be like a mathematics scientist <laughs> and an artisan and a physical athlete to get around all in one. Yeah. And then the idea of follow focusing, you know, people like Danny Tussaud, that guy's and Mark Gallup, those dudes are freaking gods at at manually racking the focus yeah. on a powder shot and just tracking. Rad. So those guys could, um, just through a physical gift or skill could be able to compete. Now the cameras were autofocusing and you could, you know, get two swaps difference and miss the exposure altogether and still be able to fix it in post. Mm-hmm. And so it made it so that, you know, just any kid with, a, you know, a, with dad's budget could go buy the right gear and start shooting right away. And then they didn't understand that, Oh, 200 bucks a day. Cool. I'll do that. Cause I'm living at home. 
Yeah. You just shot yourself in the foot and it shot the industry in the foot and in a lot of ways because uh, the rates just pretty much disappeared nearly overnight. Wow. It took a year or two, but they went down real fast. And so there wasn't ability to make the same type of um, money. And I saw that coming real quick. So I, I, I pivoted and that's where Nemo Design uh, really was inspired or it was part of the catalyst for Nemo Design. Oh, that's so sick. Why do I have Dave Sioni in my brain when I hear Nemo Design? Was he there with you in the beginning? Was he one of the early employees of Nemo or something? Dave Sioni <laughs> is one of those guys in snowboarding that wasn't the most technical like Hawkinson mm -hmm. or Craig, but he was just a cool flower and just really good on film. Just a cool guy to hang with. Mm -hmm. So Dave, when we built Nemo, so just to give you context uh, to visualize something for you. So we're in uh, central Portland and we have a 20,000 square foot warehouse. Oh, wow. And upstairs is, is where I have a, we have a photo studio and a design studio upstairs. And then downstairs I rented to Dave Sioni. <laughs> and nice. so he came in, uh, he moved up here from Reno and basically built uh, a legendary home. In the home, he had a, uh, a geodesic dome that was his bedroom. What? And he built this crazy, you know, like hamsters have those little tubes they yeah. run around with. So he yeah. made this cool deal for his cat. So his cat never left the building um, because he lives in the city. So you don't want him to get run over by a car. So he made this crazy habit trail for his cat. Sick. And then um, lived down there. Gosh, and it's, you know, knock on wood, nobody from the city's listening. But, you know, you're not <laughs> supposed to live in these commercial buildings. But right. Dave did. And uh, he became legend because he, he pivoted his career from snowboarding. He was doing filmmaking because he was such a great, we'll call it POV before GoPro. Like he was that yeah. guy. Yeah. And then he was Jake Burton's personal filmer. So the black, uh, that Visa commercial, was it? No, it was Amex commercial. Yeah. Sioni was requested by Jake Burton to be there. Oh, wow. And, um, and so Dave ended up making art. He made uh, furniture. So he put a CNC machine down there and uh, started making tables and they're so cool. And I have one in my home today. Oh, nice. I saw that um, Michael Hernandez from Nike just posted a picture of the leg table he built. Yeah. He, he made, he used his legs, the mold and <laughs> cast them in bronze and nearly died in the experiment because his legs got squeezed so hard that, and he couldn't get out super quick, so it started losing circulation in his legs. But, oh, um, I guess you suffer for your art, I guess. But such <laughs> a cool piece of work that he did, um, never to be replicated. But he did all that inspiration downstairs. And so when people would come into town, they'd always um, obviously check in with Dave because he's way cooler than me. <laughs> and then they'd come up and hang out with us at, at Nemo. And then we'd had a lot of parties here and then fundraisers and benefits and there's a lot of use with his you know cheap enough in portland where you can own these this big real estate and um we maxed it out we had a lot of fun oh that's an incredible so that married, made, that makes his sense. son george was born there oh wow george was born downstairs so he lived there for a year and then his him and his family moved down to um just north of the bay area 
So he's, that's where Dave lives today. Yeah, I was chasing him and Chris Roach down a couple of years ago, a couple of seasons back, and uh, they went to Donner, mm-hmm. and I I heard the rumor that they were there. I I was too far behind to catch <laughs> up, but I just you know, no he's always been like because I started snowboarding probably '88, started to get into it, and Western Front oh, was cool. one of those first movies, and he was in that. Yep. Talking even, I I, <laughs> so like that really leaves an impression on you when you're like a kid in high school. You you hear the voices of people. Those Fall Line films that. Artie would narrate them, or Jerry would narrate them. And, Jerry, up, yeah, and then yeah. Damien talking, and Steve Graham talking, and and Sionu would talk in those too. Oh wow! And you just get the vibe that he was like hilarious and quirky, and so yeah, you've just yep. <laughs> pretty much that that yeah. sounds right. <laughs> I got to have him on the show too well, for sure, Dave. Dave Sione, I've had the pleasure of probably going on more road trips with Dave than probably anybody, even Jason. Right. Zealand a few times, Europe, Tokyo, Japan, like as a filmer and as an athlete. So right. I've had lots of uh, quality time. With the, and it's 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 always a test of a friendship is in any relationship is just traveling together. Cause oh, there's yeah. a lot of unknown stresses and variables, as you can imagine, that pop up unexpectedly. And it's how everybody <laughs> manages that um, stress. Yes. That really is uh, defines their character and whether they're worthy of traveling with or not. So <laughs> totally. Dave's an A plus, no, no question. Oh, that's so sick. <laughs> so how often do you snowboard these days? Is it something that's still a part of your life? Are you out at Hood? you go to Meadows? Are you a ski bowl afternoon guy like Tucker Franson? <laughs> what does my snowboarding career look like today? So I'll get... It's it's gone down in days, a number of days. Yeah. And then the um, expectation of uh, a helicopter every time, <laughs> I was getting pretty spoiled. Is um, I've gotten off that pedestal, and you know what? Snowboarding is fun as heck. Anytime you get to go do it. So the experiences, um, you know, it's it's funny. I Meadows is probably the cool terrain here in in uh, Portland, mm-hmm. but I haven't gone in years. And I, I remember having this day where we were shooting star and I was in line for an hour to get on the lift. And I took a picture with a cell phone because that was something you could do now <laughs> of my feet and the board. And below me was literally as far as the eye could see snowboarders lined up and I didn't know any of them. And it just didn't feel as intimate anymore as it did in the eighties where you kind of knew everybody. And there was this conversation that would organically happen on the lift together because you shared, you know, this unique thing in common, but now it was so mainstream. Um, and everybody's sort of in their own zone that you don't really go there anymore. And so it kind of, some of that spirit died that day Mm, (laughs) and I haven't actually been back to Meadows. So, so what I do today is, um, I watch the weather and I'll hit up ski bowl during yep. the week at yep. night. I grew up in Syracuse riding at night. Um, when I grew up in Syracuse, I didn't know that you could ride during the day. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought all those shots were done on the weekend yeah. and they got lucky that it was sunny on the weekend. I had no idea. I was so naive <laughs> and uh, I rode nightboarding. So I'd go, I'd worked at the burger, flipping burgers for Toggenberg ski resort and ride at night. So nowadays, um, 
the kids, the guys from Nemo, Jen Chorowski was at Transworld for what, 12 years as a senior writer. She works for me full time. Rad. Andy Westhues and Jay Floyd. So we'll get, uh, we'll watch the weather and go up during the week because you get, you know, it's 52 miles from my house. You get right on a hill. At night, you can see through the fogs and the snow better with the with the artificial light. And totally. So, and it's usually colder, so the snow is faster, so it's actually more fun. So that uh, it's really snowboarding is about who you're riding with. Yes. Not necessarily always having the most epic powder conditions. So totally. I've learned to accept and embrace that and just enjoy it for what it is. Yeah, it's a long this way year from... Been about my, my, yeah, go ahead. This year has been about... Oh, well, this year, uh, in the past couple of years, I've been snowboarding with my daughter. She's just 19, 20 years old now. And Perfect. Decided or just figured out that I'm cool and <laughs> wants to go snowboarding with me. <laughs> and um, she got humbled. Uh, gosh, it was maybe two months ago when we went out uh, going down. And, I, you know, it's been so long since I've learned to snowboard. I forget the little tricks, you know, that you do with your waiting and unwaiting and where you should be looking and your shoulder and all that stuff. So I, and then I forget, you know, I ride faster than she does cause she's a beginner. So she tried to keep up and I should have been going slower and she scorpioned and oh. we all hate that feeling. So yes. I felt bad, but you know, it's part of the game, right? You just take your, take your licks when you get them and get back up and keep riding. Cause it's damn fun. Yeah. But the, um, yeah, nothing beats a powder day, right? Like we, get, we all have that in common still. Yeah. Yep. I could look and just say the word powder and we all have this feeling that needs a word. <laughs> yes. Japanese have a hundred words for snow. We just don't have a word for that feeling you get when you ride weightlessness and powder. Like, God, what is, there needs to be a special word for it. So awesome. Yeah. Agreed. I just saw some footage on Instagram of Mark Fawcett, who's traditionally a racer, right. obviously, but oh my God, yeah. his heel yeah, side yeah. turned. There's no... Like, it's just consistent. Then I started going through his feed looking at the heel side turns that he does, and I'm like, oh, I want to learn that. Yeah. That's the thing, is you see him do it, and you think, oh, I can do that. But it, you can't learn it if you think you already know how to do it. So I have, <laughs> I'm I'm humbled this week thinking, okay, I need to learn how to turn heel side again 30 years in. But, yeah. It's awesome. Wonder. There's still progression to be done in snowboarding. Oh, absolutely. And being inspired by Mark Fawcett. Yes. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. Good people. Totally good people. You really are basically an honorary Canadian. Like, you would have shot in, in BC all the time. Yeah, until Dano showed up. But yeah, <laughs> Ken Hawk was shooting for a bit. And then yeah, Ken. Kind of, right. You know, mm -hmm. Sean and Sean. Um, I'd be scared to go to Canada. Because you knew if you were shooting with Sean Kearns and Sean Johnson that you had to drink. And there's no way I could drink as hard as those guys. Oh, and no so way. Canadians, for me, were the gnarliest drinkers in the world. I was scared of them. So it goes both ways. <laughs> yeah, I could see it. I could see it. Oh, man. Yeah, that is true. There was a lot of alcoholism, hey? That was, it was intimately tied into. Yeah. I thought Dano was a drinker, but he's not. That's where I got confused. And that, and it's so pathetic of us being so stereotypical. You know, you, oh, you're Canadian, you must drink. Like, that's so shallow, but oh, I guess you're young, you're dumb. You yeah, when you're young, you're dumb. Yeah, when I went to Wendell's, <laughs> I had the guys thinking that, that, because they had said, why are you at Mount Hood? Isn't there snow in Canada all year round? And I was like, there is totally, man. That was, that was fun. 
Windell's in 1990. I literally just saw the ad in a magazine, called the number, gave them my parents' credit card number, and went to nice. camp. Yeah, it was so sick, dude. It was such a fun time. Still going. Still yeah, I'm going. On the, uh, I'm proud to say I'm on the board of directors for YE's Academy, which is the extension of Wendell's snowboard camp. So Rad. The two camps merged, and Tim's yep. family actually were educators, and he had a vision of making this boarding school. And what's been amazing is that through COVID, they've attracted um, 42 students to live there full time and train. Wow. wow. So we've got uh, skiers, snowboarders, mountain bike program skaters and they um all get to basically have instructors and uh coaches like elijah teeter is the olympic athlete and he's their snowboard coach up there Incredible. and um it's just how cool would that be to be you know in high school and going to do a boarding school at some place like wise academy oh that's too so cool fun yeah that's so awesome so you have stayed connected to the people that you've met through the industry. You've mentioned so many of them, but like say a Doug Palladini, you still keep in touch with him from time to time. Say, Hey, well, it's funny how you say it too, is like you kind of build your, you know, your circle of influence and then those people kind of take care of you and you, <laughs> and you still get calls like this, like yeah, stuff I shot 30 years ago is still, people still call me up and want pictures. It's really it's inspiring and I feel very, uh, I feel very fortunate. Uh, and then keeping in touch, it's like, as we all get older, you start to lose touch. Sometimes you get so focused on your day to day and there's, it's, I guess it's natural, but I think it's discipline to stay in touch. And, um, Doug, yeah, we do keep in touch here and there, but not as much, but it makes me, you know, when you hear about this, I think about somebody like Rob Morrow. Yeah. Um, when I moved to Oregon, I lived in his basement for six months Oh wow! Uh, while I try to figure out a place to live. Love his mother. She's super awesome. And Rob's an amazing human being and the coolest snowboarder in the world. Yep. And keep in touch with him. We went up to, two years ago up to um, Baldface together and rode wow. uh, and just keep in touch. And then his buddy, uh, Jake Howsworth, is, he was my photo assistant for a lot of years. And I continue to just stay in touch with these people because... Um, they're awesome. Same with Dave Sione. You just, you know, the people that were really awesome and inspirational for you, you just stay in touch with because it just, uh, yeah, it just gives you those warm fuzzies of feeling like you belong to, you know, a family, a tribe. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, I started the podcast about six years ago and felt like I was a part of that, but like kind of on the outside and, you know, guys like Ken Ock, Dano, Doug, you know, just really make like, it's such a loving, warm community of people. It's a good, it's a, it's a bunch of really good people. And I always held, uh, Jamie Salter outside the group thinking like, you know, he was, Oh, he ruined snowboarding or whatever. My, you know, I, I was towing the line and Jason Ford was the one who told me, no, 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 no. He's brilliant. No, you need to have him on your show. He's one of us. He's totally one of us, man. You think, oh, he ruined snowboarding. He sold into all these box stores or whatever concept I had of selling out. He's a visionary. He just, he saw a different path. He said, look, I'm going to do this one. You guys do the cool guy thing. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do the money guy thing. Tim Pogues says the same thing, right? Like, yeah. And maybe in some ways he gives life to brands that kind of couldn't 
manage their business. You know, like Joyride, I remember that was yep. one that he acquired and, you know, he just has a better business mind. And let's just be honest, all of us as passionate, inspirational snowboarders just sometimes don't have the business uh, accoutrement to, right. you know, take it to the next level. And that's okay. Yeah, that's where Paladini and Vans, it's like they've got this authenticity thing that's going through the roof. There's space in the world for people who are doing business and also making the world a radder spot. Great story, huh? Just, yeah. Uh, watching Vans go from zero to hero, not even zero, but just yeah. I mean, Vans felt big when I was a kid buying skateboards. Totally. Them, but the, uh, yeah, Palladini did great. He's a great story and yeah. still a great human being and doing good things in the world. So Absolutely. Yeah. I asked him too. I go point blank. Yeah. You know, it's a public company now, and if they gave you the opportunity to advance and be head of VF Corporation as the president of VF Corp, yeah. the public face on Wall Street, would you do it? And he goes, nope. He goes, I'm I'm with the Van family. This is my home. This is where I belong. Like, he definitely was very, cool, uh, very, like, all about being the Van's, um, you know, visionary. Yeah. You got Steve Van Doren down there. You've got, you just have so many of the greatest hits of skateboarding and snowboarding, you know, Palmer was there, Daniel Frank, Jamie Lynn, Cersei, and now you've got, it's still relevant now with like Arthur Longo and Jake Kuzik, and yep. it's such a rad brand. So like nothing in the action sports community has ever been this big before. Well, it doesn't even feel that big, even though you can get them everywhere. Big shout out to There's Vance. Balancing act. what they're doing. And it's tough to sell in like, hey, sometimes we don't chase this particular dollar because it'll hurt us. Because I've been in those meetings. They're not fun. Oh, uh, when yeah. people make sellout decisions that are short-term, short-term gain because they're just trying to make a quick buck and flip it and jump onto the next bandwagon. Yes. So, yeah. yeah, That's a big and one. It's sneaky, dude. Yeah. Like, be careful. Pandora's box. Once you kind of get in and you can see all the sneaky yes. listening tools and yeah. Fake follower tools. Ugh. Yeah. I hate them. I hate all of them. Yeah. It sucks. Yeah, it can be yourself. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Is that is that basically what you guys basically do for people is like find no, their authentic I mean, stuff and it's always Yeah. I'll tell you what Nemo does, you know, what our I guess a quick elevator statement on Nemo design is yes. that we're a uh active lifestyle branding agency. Mm-hmm. And so you look at uh, right now, probably thing I'm really proud of is the work with um, Eric Purcell over at Icon Ski Pass. Yes, cool. And, uh, you know, love and hate it. Some, some yep. resorts, you know, oh, it's ruined our local vibe, but as a business. And really, again, let's be honest, saving skiing again. Yes. You know, skiing in general, it has its ups and downs, but this pass really got people excited to bring their families out to the resorts. And Absolutely. through the pandemic, their numbers are fine. They did pretty damn good, all things considered. I thought it would be a really hard year, but they uh, they uh, got through it pretty good. And so it's um, fun to watch as we built the name and the brand and every all the marketing around what's going on with Icon Pass. To watch it go from zero to hero yeah. is really, really the fun part of this job. And, you know, we get to do on... You know, humbly, we've done Nike 6.0, an action sports brand for Nike under the SB logo. Rad. We worked on that for eight years. Uh, worked with Danny Cass on some of that stuff. That was fun. Amazing. Um, 
Mastercraft wakeboard boats, did that for 10 years. You know, so we get really lucky that we get to mostly play in, you know, we'll call it fun stuff. Cool. And haven't really had to deal with um, municipalities or doing pharmaceutical packaging. <laughs> oh, you know, God. We have been able to pay our bills and not really work a day of our life. That's incredible, dude. Yeah. Um, you've got a lot of employees and... Eh, 25 full-time. We got through the pandemic and we didn't lose anybody. We kept the whole staff, which I'm really proud of as a, That's a leader and a business person. Just trying to, you know, I come to work every day and try to take care of this family I have here and feed them and all their kids and car payments and house payments and things that are dependent on everybody having a good job. So I try to get in before the used to get in before the cars show up so you don't have to think about it, but you can't think about it that way. You just got to keep trying to have fun uh, and make things happen because that's when you do your best work is when you stay in that um, light and fun type of mindset and get too serious. Oh, you start to make stuff for those corporate types. And unfortunately, or fortunately, the customer wants the cool stuff. So yeah, I encourage you to come when things open up because um, we're right downtown. The food carts are right here. And, Sick. Um, yeah. I wish Sione was still downstairs for you. but <laughs> Yeah, I definitely can't wait for the borders to open up mostly for Baker, but like this time of year for Hood, like, I mean, 10 years running, we had spring passes come down for a week and just shred Epic Park. They know what they're doing down at Timberline. So, yeah. All the shows, a lot of music and food in Portland. Oh, and just so much. Coast is right there, Gorge, lots of fun stuff. Unbelievable. Sure. Yeah, man. Well, Trevor, it was absolutely amazing talking with you. And thanks for all your imagery over the years. It's burned into my brain, dude. You got it. Thank you for being so educated and knowing what's going on. It makes it more fun to have the conversation. Awesome. Have a great afternoon. You too, my friend. F and Rad shoutouts this week to Trevor Graves. Thanks, man. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Also, thank you to Spreading Good Vibes. I got a rad hoodie from them this week. Check them out online. <laughs> on the internet. Go check that out. While you're there, get some new Salmon Arms gloves because Nick from Salmon Arms is the best. Awesome job to the park staff at Grouse. It's been fun riding up there this week. Thanks to Marcus. Stoked that you're starting to drive the groomers. That's awesome. And thanks to the park staff at Mount Seymour with a little extra special thanks to Chris Savage. That dude's fucking rad, man. Awesome. Be sure to come back next week for another episode of the F and Rad Snowboard Podcast. Presented by Vans and brought to you by SIA Productions.